This is Asia in Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of Asia in Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from our experts in Asia Pacific on the issues that matter most to businesses. Hi, everyone. This is Angela Mancini, Partner Control Risks, and I lead the Asia Pacific Markets Group. In today's discussion, we're going to turn the spotlight onto global supply chain diversification. This is an issue that's been discussed for a very long time already. It started quite some time ago as it related to the U.S.-China geopolitical tensions, but then has only been exacerbated as we've gone through COVID lockdowns in China and elsewhere. And what we want to do today is get into really what's happening on the ground with business in these markets, get a bit of an inside view as to what businesses are really thinking about and what they've actually been doing. China and Southeast Asia are closely intertwined. They have been for a long time, and these supply chain diversification issues have only heightened that. But we really want to discuss what's actually happening on the ground, what we're actually seeing. And more importantly, what does this really mean for business? What are the risks and opportunities of thinking about supply chain diversification and whether companies want to maintain the status quo or whether they want to make changes? More supply chain shifts are coming, but it's not all about diversification from China. You need to understand the specific geopolitical, operational, financial, reputational risks and opportunities to your industry, to specific products, and benchmark options based on that. Businesses thinking of moving into Southeast Asia really need to consider the diversity of the region. Diversity isn't just a cool word, but it plays out in reality in terms of labor risks, infrastructure, and politics. That was Julia Coim, a director based in Shanghai, and Harrison Chang, director based in Singapore. They lead our professional teams on the ground looking at these issues for clients, and they spend all day every day out with clients advising those businesses on the political and regulatory landscape across China, Northeast Asia, and Southeast Asia. So to kick us off today, Julia, let's start with you. We're going to take a look at China, which of course is a key manufacturing supply chain node for businesses across the globe, but with increasing concerns. So Julia, again, you spend all your time talking to clients across a variety of sectors and a variety of headquarter locations around supply chain issues and other broader issues. You know, we've had years of quote unquote made in China And now we're seeing that the country's supply chain seems to be compounded by a series of disruptive events. Of course, it started with, you know, even back to the cost issues years ago with uh, companies trying to think about how to right size their costing and potentially move out. And then that's exacerbated by the U.S.-China geopolitical tensions. Then we've had COVID control policies. We've had further economic challenges in China. Can you give us a view now sitting in China? What is the supply chain landscape for us now? And Will China's position as the, you know, quote unquote, world's factory be changing further in any way? Thanks, Angela. I think you really have to differentiate between the gradual transition that has been going on for years due to things like rising labor costs uh, or more stringent environmental regulation, uh, which were moves that uh, China was very happy to see uh, as as it moved up the value chain. And the more recent drivers of supply chain shifts like geopolitics, like the COVID containment policies, uh, and especially the more recent, uh, more stringent lockdowns. 
it's really the uncertainty around COVID-19 containment policies that are seeing many companies reach a tipping point for their supply chain strategies. They're shifting their sourcing or reconsidering relocation plans for a number of reasons, but it's the lockdowns and the disruptions linked to those lockdowns over the past few months that have been the real trigger for moves. And I think, you know, this is something we've obviously felt in our own business in Shanghai with the extended lockdown. And I won't go into that in too much detail, but I highly recommend the episode with uh, Ife Zhang, our general manager here, if people are more interested in that. But despite all the lockdown drama, China is still and will remain critical to supply chains and will, of course, remain a major hub for anyone producing for what is still the largest consumer market in the world over the next few years. And many companies, I think, underestimate how reliant on China their supply chains are and will continue to be. That said, due to the recent disruptions, we are going to see a greater push for more supply chain diversification out of China, particularly where the end market is not China. And even post-COVID, or after the end of the zero COVID policy containment measures that we have in place now, geopolitical tensions and the the concerns around partners being sanctioned or being perceived as posing a reputational or, or security threats is going to sustain that shift. Thanks, Julia. That was interesting. So you just mentioned geopolitical tension. You also mentioned that it's actually COVID-related policies that are driving a fair amount of at least the recent uh, movement out of China. But let's go back to the geopolitical tensions for a minute. So if you were sitting in the US or reading mainly you know, the US press, let's say, you would think that for the majority of American companies or even perhaps broader Western multinational companies, the issue around China is you know, how to pull out, how to think about moving out almost regardless of sector is what the press might have us think. But again, you're there talking to clients across a range of sectors. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the geopolitical tensions specifically? So to what extent are those having a specific impact on companies now with potential decisions to move either supply chains out or perhaps the next new dollar investment out of China? So absolutely, uh, concerns around geopolitical tensions are having an effect on companies' overall strategic outlook. And I think this is even more true as companies have seen the amount of disruption to companies with heavy reliance on Russia or Ukraine, given what has happened there. I think with regards to China, it's been a gradually rising risk, but has not been the decision driver alone. But the things businesses are worried about include their specific suppliers or business partners being sanctioned or being subjected to trade restrictions. They worry about reputational risks linked to sourcing from China. They worry about tariffs, which is still something under discussion and you know likely to be reviewed more depending on the change in leadership in the U.S. in a few years. And this is not just an issue outside of China in terms of restrictions being imposed on China, but also concerns about potential use of counter sanctions from China, export controls being used in China, etc. And all of this is prompting a lot of discussions and you know, hand-wringing around potential benefits of onshoring, nearshoring, friendshoring, etc. That's interesting. So what you're basically saying is it's less the quote-unquote geopolitical tensions or things might be getting tough between the two countries. But from what you're seeing with your clients, it's very specific concerns around very specific either suppliers or issues they have going on in their business. And that's then adding up to a broader trend. So let me ask you this then. I know that many companies have been reviewing their supply chain strategies given you know everything that's happening. And we've certainly been engaged a lot and you and your team 
have been very busy helping clients work through these various issues. From your experience in supporting those clients, what are companies, and perhaps you can talk about some of the different industries, not just the ones that are most under the spotlight, but what are they actually doing to address the challenges? Businesses are increasingly focused on building resilience overall to the disruptions that we've seen, but the strategic risk mitigation approaches vary quite a bit. For some, it's the diversification away from China, but for some, it's greater localization in China. This is specifically, for instance, in the healthcare industry, where that's a key factor for businesses being competitive in terms of public procurement. For others, it's the removal of intermediary distributors to go direct to their consumers. All of these different strategies are being pursued and sometimes concurrently. I think the challenge is knowing which of these approaches is right for your industry, for your specific business, and and even specific products might require different solutions. And I'd say that the frustrations around supply chain disruptions are really high. And in the context of headlines constantly warning about China, some of those decisions, I think, get made without a real benchmarking of the relative risk level. And I know, you know, you just mentioned that some companies are actually doing increased localization. And I know you and your teams have been busy with even market entry strategies at this point, which again, is very counter to some of the headline news we might read. But you've said before that many businesses might be even a bit naive, if we can say, about where China sits in the supply chain. And so how are businesses thinking about which one of those strategies you were just discussing might actually fit their specific purposes? Because of the many factors uh, driving supply chain risks, I'd say some companies are, and maybe many companies, are taking a very reactive approach to the issue, particularly where it's more layered than a straightforward cost or capacity question. We've spoken to some companies who feel they've removed their China risks entirely because they have changed their suppliers outside of China. But often they've only done this with their tier one suppliers and assume that they're fine. But they're not. The supply chain disruptions over the past few years, if anything, have been a lesson in the surprise supply chain bottlenecks further down your supply chain. This could be clusters of tier three manufacturers in one location that suddenly has a COVID outbreak. It could be dependencies on specific shipping routes for one set of components or raw materials. If you recall an incident in the Suez Canal that uh, really stressed that. So China probably sits for most companies in more than one part of the supply chain. And it may not be at all possible to fully diversify away from that dependency. And then of course, there are pull factors to China, which is doing its own onshoring. I mentioned the healthcare sector before, and for a lot of public procurement in the healthcare sector, for instance, hospitals are now required to preference products that are manufactured in China for many products. So we're helping a lot of companies setting up new manufacturing sites in China to meet this requirement. So even if you can relocate your manufacturing or your sourcing, you may not want to. To quote one client we spoke to recently when comparing China to their alternative sourcing market, China is cheaper, faster, better. So you know companies really need to map their exposure to different risks and opportunities and benchmark the alternative locations based on the actual availability of alternatives and the quality. We 
We will return to the conversation with Julian Harrison in just a moment. But if you're interested to read more about our analysis on what's really happening with the global supply chain, particularly as it relates to China and broader Asia, please do click on the link below our podcast notes. Um, And if you're thinking of more analysis and insights that you'd be interested in, please do visit the Our Thinking section on our website. We have experts all over the world uh, constantly weighing in on these issues, again, from the perspective of what's actually happening on the ground. Now let's turn the conversation, Harrison, over to you. So Harrison, you sit in Singapore and you and your team look after all of our clients and operational issues across Southeast Asia. Um, We've been hearing from Julia that the conversation around global supply chain shifts or shifts, let's say, out of China and to elsewhere is certainly more nuanced than we're reading in the press and even maybe hearing at some chamber events. And in fact, as Julia just said, quite extraordinarily, there's actually some market entry in China, given what's going on and people trying to take advantage. But, you know, you sit on what could be called, I guess, the recipient side, because quite a lot of what we're hearing is how companies are moving out of China and into Southeast Asia as it relates to supply chain. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what you're seeing from that perspective. How do you think Southeast Asia is refashioning its supply chain landscape? And, and actually, is it? And how do you see these factors actually playing out in the Southeast Asia market more broadly? Thanks, Angela. It's true that been a lot more focused attention now uh, on the part of businesses and investors into Southeast Asia as a potential supply chain location. And it's true that, that you know Southeast Asia is often marked up as, in a sense, a clear alternative. But in actual reality, based on what we're seeing on the ground, there's still quite a lot of hesitation on the part of businesses to move into Southeast Asia. So all in all, it's really an imperfect substitute for China. As Julia said, there are actually a lot of things going for China, despite what's going on with the COVID-19 management policies. Um, one way to, to sort of understand this is to look at labor. You know, this is a key source of client anxiety or concern when they think about moving into Southeast Asia. Chinese workers uh, and, and the level of productivity that they have is a huge plus. And when they move into Southeast Asia, that's really where a lot of uncertainty lies. It's true that you can look at the cost that can be quantified, which is in terms of labor cost, you know, in pure dollar terms. But there's also the cost that cannot be quantified. And actually, there are a lot of hidden trade-offs or costs uh, on the labor side. For example, the shortage of skilled labor. That's still a key concern in many places. Um, For example, in Malaysia, even approvals of worker permits has been incredibly slow for the manufacturing sector, which is pretty amazing if you think about it because Malaysia is such a huge uh, part of the global supply chain. For semiconductors, it's 7% of global trade. So that has really grabbed a lot of headlines and also a lot of concern on the part of clients. Obviously, labor activism, the power of unions, the weaker labor protection standards around across Southeast Asia in many parts of this region does have implications for businesses in many different varied ways. One of which is obviously uh, reputational risk related to, for example, allegations of forced labor, child labor. Some of these have actually led to export bans by the US on countries like Malaysia. The withdrawal of trade preferences on specific exports from Thailand Um, And obviously, with ESG looming large in the business kind of framework, these are really serious considerations that clients are putting thinking about these days. Furthermore, again, this relocation story is not new. Some key countries like Vietnam, you know, have become fairly crowded. And so, in a sense, if businesses are only thinking about relocating at this point, 
they could be seen as latecomers to the party, right? Which is why actually what we're seeing on the ground is more companies are looking at alternatives. You know, instead of looking at just Vietnam, which is, uh, you know, the star performer, or Malaysia and Thailand, which are mature manufacturing bases, they're looking at alternatives like Indonesia, for example, which has a huge domestic market. The rest of the region is, in a sense, less attractive because it's just not so well developed in terms of infrastructure, and the domestic markets are significantly smaller. For example, Cambodia, Laos. One more thing to note about Southeast Asia is that even though most of the region has actually moved forward towards endemicity, there's a misconception that you know this means that operationally it's fine, businesses don't have to worry about lockdowns. But if you see how certain key countries in Southeast Asia managed uh, the lockdown last year, there were a couple of concerning signs that would have given pause or thought, one of which is in Vietnam when many workers were actually locked down in their workplaces, in their factories. And what happened is when the lockdown was lifted, many of them rushed home to their provinces and refused to return to Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh City. And even now, companies have had to, on the ground, have had to offer very generous benefits to actually just convince workers to go back to the urban areas, to the manufacturing hubs. So that is still a work in progress for the Vietnamese government. The second is Malaysia, which, as I mentioned earlier, is an important semiconductor hub for the supply chain globally. But I think how they managed the lockdown last year showed quite a lot of gaps in their understanding of how supply chain actually worked. So some of our clients were snout in this ineffective COVID-19 policy where certain parts of the supply chain were allowed to function, but other parts were simply not allowed to. So it essentially made it extremely difficult to manufacture products and then to move them out. So I think those are some of the lessons that you know our businesses are learning and which is why they have not really gravitated so strongly to Southeast Asia, despite what you see in China today. Yeah, Harrison, thanks. That's really interesting. I remember that uh, hearing from you some anecdotes during the height of COVID uh, as things were loosening with COVID around Southeast Asia and the stories of truckers being allowed to drive product up to the border, but then not being able to cross the border, even though they could then drive once they got across the border, but actually not being able to do that to do the few yards across. And also, I recall talking to clients with Julia that had said, as you mentioned, ESG, the issue of, you know, hey, it took us years to get the ESG and the the labor issues, the, you know, forced labor, child labor risks sorted in China. Uh, we almost can't bear to think about trying to start from scratch to make sure we've got that right in Southeast Asia. So indeed, it's not so simple as to just think about, let's pull the supply chain out and move it across whole cloth. So that's really interesting. Let me ask you this. Again, just reading the headline news, one would think that a lot of companies are moving not just supply chains, but potentially also global or regional headquarters across to places like Singapore, Malaysia, etc. Um, we've seen for a couple of years now, uh, commentary that, you know, it's not so easy again on the recipient side, countries like Vietnam have been said to be quote unquote full, depending on the sector, you know, it's, it's to your point about being a latecomer, if you haven't already started that process, you might be a bit too late. But let me ask you this, let's get a little bit more into the specifics of markets in Southeast Asia and sectors that uh, clients are in, because, you know, clearly it's going to, the experience of companies being able to move across the Southeast Asia is going to depend quite a lot, right, in terms of which market they pick and which sector that they're in. So can you talk a little bit about which markets would be ready for supply chains and which sectors, which ones are still open for business, still pretty readily available for companies to be either moving in newly new or to be expanding uh, further what they might already have a, uh, in in terms of a foothold? Can you talk about the pros and cons of maybe some of the key markets? 
Yeah, thanks, Angela. So I think even for that star performer that I mentioned on Vietnam, where the sectors that are really critical in terms of supply chains for Vietnam, you know, obviously electronics, for example, like smartphones, semiconductors, textiles, and also the, the up and coming one is really uh, EVs and EV batteries, right? So Vietnam is also in the process of you know producing, exporting electric batteries. It was the ninth largest exporter of that in 2020. And part of what's driving that is also or rather part of what is uh, influencing the Vietnamese government's considerations on that front is also the sizable nickel deposits that are in Vietnam, right? And we have seen nickel mines that are being reopened right now to capitalize on this EV craze, basically. The EV craze is also quite uh, evident in, in some of the more mature markets here. So Malaysia, Thailand have gotten in on the, on the act, you know, government policies uh, pushing for the assembly and distribution of EVs, um, the domestic uh, production of EV batteries, and for Malaysia and Thailand, the other big one will obviously be petroleum and petrochemical products. So this is where we see um, the government actually shifting its incentives towards producing uh, specialty chemicals. So no longer the kind of lower value petrochemical products and petroleum products, but really moving towards really specialty chemical products um, and moving ev- even into biofuels and biochemicals. And this is all part of, obviously, the green transition, trying to move towards, you know, fulfilling the government's commitments towards uh, climate change agreements, uh, climate protection agreements. So the last one I'll really mention is probably Indonesia. So Indonesia is where I think a lot of businesses on the ground right now see that opportunity. Um, The omnibus law that was passed quite recently obviously advantages a lot of capital over labor concerns, and that's one way in which the Indonesian government is really trying to incentivize that kind of foreign investment. Even on the EV scene, the, the Indonesian government is getting in on the act. Um, but I think for Indonesia, it's a bit more tricky. Uh, what we hear on the ground is that it may be fairly easy to get into Indonesia, but it's really trying to navigate the regulatory climate there that's tricky and challenging. Furthermore, for Indonesia, it's a sprawling archipelago. You need to think about things like logistics and transport infrastructure. In a sense, if you look at it from an objective standpoint, comparing across these markets, uh, Indonesia is the one that is probably the most challenging. Whereas Malaysia and Thailand have very clearly integrated their logistics infrastructure. You see high-speed rails, you see new railway projects connecting the ports, connecting the airports and the seaports. And there are still plans to expand this kind of infrastructure in the coming years, despite the political instability that gets the headlines in these countries. So I think what many international headlines don't really capture is that nuance that there may be a lot of political chaos out there but these supply chain incentives this manufacturing evolution if you want to call it that way that's still continuing despite all the changes in government and that's really a continuity that businesses should be taking advantage of if they are not already yeah, that's great. Um, well, before we conclude the conversation, I want to turn Julian Harrison to you both. And Julie, I'll start with you. You know, we have a lot of people listening that are from a range of sectors that have operations in China and Southeast Asia, most likely. And, you know, the conversation today has focused around, do you stay in China? Do you move out of China? Do you move into Southeast Asia? If so what are those challenges and kind of all the, the nuance around that? So, Let me turn to you both. Julie, let's start with you. What are some suggestions for businesses that you would have as they think about whether to deepen the supply chain in China or to try to diversify that out and move into a place perhaps like Southeast Asia? It's a really good question, Angela. I think the important thing is that things are not going to get less complicated 
in the future. So it's critical to not just be reactive or uh, just focus on on problem solving of individual supply chain challenges, but to take a more strategic, proactive approach. And to do that, I think businesses really need to do uh, a mapping of their own geopolitical risk scenarios and assessment. How exposed are they to geopolitical, regulatory, reputational, and operational risks? And from there, you do a supply chain benchmarking you do the market entry assessments to make sure that you make the right choices and that your transition is successful. And also, I would recommend to take a global or at least a regional approach to this exercise, because despite there being increasing localization pressure, supply chains remain extremely interconnected and interdependent. And if you look at just one country's operating conditions or risk profile, you're going to miss a critical part of the picture. Mm-hmm. And Harrison, how about you? What what suggestions would you have for our clients? I think the first one I would really raise is, is something that I mentioned earlier, which is even though the Southeast Asian region seems to have moved on from COVID, COVID will still be an essential risk factor. Don't just assume it will be easy operationally once if you ever think of getting into a Southeast Asian market. As I mentioned, the examples of Vietnam and Malaysia should be illustrative of the kind of challenges that we're expected to face, uh, even as we, you know, encounter new, new variants of Omicron and, and, and who knows what variants in the coming years. I think the other point is really don't underestimate the way political risk can play into this picture. So as I mentioned, yes, there is continuity despite political change. But political changes um, do affect, for example, COVID management policies. You need to consider the kind of stakeholders that you probably need if you want to make the market entry process as smooth as possible. And don't assume that, you know, engaging at the national level will be sufficient, especially in places where political and administrative power is more dispersed. For example, in Vietnam, where provincial power brokers can basically make or break your investment, as well as in Indonesia, where the provincial players have a lot of power relative to the center. And I think the final part would be really about factoring in the current economic environment of rising inflation, economic downturn. How sustainable is the domestic supply chain? In Southeast Asia, the domestic supply chain often is made up of uh, SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises. In some places like Malaysia and Thailand, they can make up like 80 to 90% of uh, supply chains for MNCs. So how sustainable is that supply chain? Does the state actually have the fiscal capacity to intervene and support these small and medium-sized businesses? Because these are critical to your supply chain. Uh, And if not, if, if public debt ratios are rising, if governments like Thailand are sort of running out of money just putting more and more money into fuel subsidies just to keep people happy ahead of an election next year. To what extent is the government committed to ensuring that these businesses survive and by extension that you survive, that your supply chain is intact? And ultimately, you need to factor all that in, uh, in your risk assessment before you actually start doing the market entry. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, just pulling this all together based on this really good conversation we've just had. Julie, what I'm hearing you say about China is, again, everyone is not pulling out. In fact, it's not true that almost all companies are thinking about moving supply chains out. In fact, there's some companies that are localizing even further and we're doing some market entry work for them. But the issue, it sounds like with China is less geopolitics and more COVID related in terms of actually being the final push for companies to think about diversifying now, but that when it does relate to geopolitics, it's not the headline geopolitics, it's the very specific application of any geopolitically driven issues on your company, right? So very specifically looking at your sector, your 
supply chain, your suppliers, you know, how everything's actually playing out for you as, as an individual entity and helping, as I know you do in, in many cases, helping boards and the C-suite cut through the noise of all the news they're hearing to really look at what actually matters to their company and then, and then actually mapping that out and planning around that as opposed to the broader news cycle. And then Harrison, it's interesting to hear you talk about Southeast Asia. It sounds like it's not so simple just to move supply chains across into Southeast Asia, but there are some bright spots, particularly as, as you mentioned, related to some of the newer green transition areas like EVs or specialty chemicals, but that some of the old, uh, you know, the old risks that we've been talking about for decades still apply in the case of Indonesia, for example, the political and regulatory landscape, the logistics and transport issues, and the like. So definitely a complex picture. It sounds like the main thing for companies to make sure that they're doing is really just think very specifically about their own operations, their own footprint, their own supply chains, their own risk appetite as it relates to these issues. And also, Harrison, as you mentioned, quite importantly, looking at the viability of supply chains in a new market vis-a-vis uh, economic pressures that we're going to face in the coming years as as COVID variants might come into play. So thank you for that. It just leaves me to thank you both for really just a terrific discussion. And thanks for the listeners for tuning in. That's all for today's Asian Focus. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to our podcast channel so that you can receive all the new episodes as they come out. And thank you again and look forward to the next time. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of Asia in Focus, be sure to subscribe and make sure to check out our other podcasts as well. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.